just never know, do you? What we're gonna talk about. Okay, here we go. All right, this is First uh, Samuel 4 through 7 for those who just joined us on the podcast. So the, the main character, who's the main character in chapters 4 through 7? Who's the main character of the Bible? God is really the main character of these four chapters, okay? We're going to have to keep that in mind in order to figure this whole thing out. Uh, specifically, it's his glory that is really the main character of these four chapters. His glory is, is his holiness. It's really who he is. And in chapter 4, the, it says the glory departs from Israel. And then what we're going to see in chapters 5 and 6 is that God upholds his glory himself. He's going he's gonna to keep it. Israel, it, it got banished. He's going to keep it, and he's going to withhold it and uphold it himself. And then in chapter 7, we are going to see Israel reclaim that glory through repentance when they come back to the Lord. So even though we have the Israelites and we have the Philistines, really God's glory is the main character of this whole story and depending on whether or not his glory or his holiness was being diminished or proclaimed uh, is whether or not the Israelites were victorious or defeated okay so whether or not they were diminishing it or proclaiming it is dependent on whether or not they were defeated or they were victorious giving us some really good insight into our own lives as to how we will be either defeated or victorious in the things that we go through. Now, what's really fascinating to me is how chapter 4 begins this whole thing. And, and we could so easily miss this, but the very beginning of the verse says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. But then Samuel just completely disappears from this whole thing. And we don't hear from him again until chapter 7. 20 years are going to go by before we get another glimpse of Samuel. But the Lord was speaking to Samuel, right? This is a season of God speaking. He's been quiet for a really long time. And now he has a prophet that he is speaking through. But what happens when they go up against the Philistines? Do they ask Samuel to come and help them? No, they do not. They do not seek God's prophet at all in that scenario. God was willing to speak. God is ready to speak. They are not willing to listen. They're not ready to listen yet. And I found that Super interesting. And uh, Amanda, I thought of you when I was looking at that because of what you said last week of just speaking truth to, to our kids or to our friends or just like saying the hard thing. And yes, we need to do that. But at the same time, I thought we kind of have to let go too because unless they're willing to listen, you know, it's really on the Lord to bring them to repentance. And so we can speak the truth. And then I think the important thing is to live the truth and to just continually pray for them but, you know, it, Samuel was ready. I have no doubt Samuel was ready to lead these people. And I think during that time, Samuel was pouring his heart out to God. And I think God was speaking to Samuel. It wasn't time yet, though. Israel wasn't ready to listen, okay? 
Now, the Philistines are really Israel's biggest enemy through First and Second Samuel. They pop up all the time. We're going to see them with Saul. We're going to see them with David. Uh, they, they were their longest standing enemy through this season. And even though we don't physically have an army out there waiting on the outskirts of town to attack us, which makes it kind of hard for us, I think, sometimes to relate because we're not living that life. Even though we don't have an army out there, we are living in a battle. We are living in a spiritual battle every single day. Who are we battling? What are we up against? I didn't hear you. See, I can't hear, right? We talked about it last week. <laughs> Satan, yes. The spiritual forces of evil. Who, what else are we battling? Ourselves. Ourselves. Seriously, yes. And sometimes I think that is my biggest battle, is against my flesh. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Be loved. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and here's the part that gets me, which wage war against your soul. We are at war. We are at war every single day. If you have the Holy Spirit living within you, you are at war against your flesh. And it is a daily battle. It is absolutely daily. But if you are not battling anything, then you're living in the flesh. I'll just tell you that right now. You're not living in the spirit if you're not battling anything at all. Now, this, I found this interesting too. Sometimes it's a little harder, and this is going to set the scene for us. This is foundational work that we're doing right now. It's a little harder sometimes to think about those schemes of the devil, right? Like, he's just busy with everyone else, or, or we just don't know. You know, we just don't know. Can I attribute that? Like, is that the evil one trying to get after me or, or whatnot? This week, I read in Matthew 16, just jot it down if you want, 16, 21 through 23. You're going to be very familiar with it. Um, but Jesus is with the disciples. Peter has just made his big confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus tells them, he says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You know what the devil is constantly scheming to get us to do? Is to get us on the things of man. He just wants to get us to act like, think like men and women. That's all he wants us to do. Think about our rights. Think about what we need to have. Think about what we're not getting. Thinking about what we desire. He just wants us to get, think about us. That's, that's, that's a real easy scheme that he plays on us all the time. Instead of thinking of the things of God. Instead of thinking about being a child of God. Like, we need to be thinking up here. <laughs> And it's real easy to get us thinking down here. All right. So that, I just, there's bonus for you. I read that this week and I was like, that's it. It's so simple. It's just, he's just getting me to think like Stacy. <laughs> Instead of actually getting me to think like the cherished child of God that I am. 
you know, saved for God's kingdom and for his glory and his work. So, all right, we are at war. We are at war. This is why Paul stresses, the Apostle Paul stresses to put on your daily armor. So while the Israelites were suiting up physically, we suit up spiritually. And this is a concept that I don't think I grabbed onto until, man, I don't know, just 10 years ago. I don't know. It took me a long time to get this one. But maybe this will be new for you, but this is huge. When it comes to studying the Bible, what is often seen in physical form in the Old Testament is spiritual in the New Testament. Okay? So, for example, the promised blessings for Israel in the Old Testament, they're very physical. Your crops are going to grow. You're going to have all these babies. Like, nothing's ever going to go wrong for you. You're never going to get sick. I mean, it's very physical blessings. And we like to go, okay, yeah, I'll have that too. I'll take that. We're not promised that. Our promises are over here in the New Testament, and they are spiritual. We are promised with every blessing in Christ. We are promised with, um, with him. We are prom- he is our treasure, right? So we have different promises. The, those physical promises will come true for us later. All right, but what we've been promised is spiritual. Uh, we see that again with the temple, for example. It was a physical place in the Old Testament. We are now the temple of God. It's spiritual in the New Testament. Is it, can you guys think of anything? Is anything else coming to mind when you're like, oh, that makes sense. What about this? Anything else coming to mind? You can think of the blessings. You can think of the temple. You could think of the kingdom. They had a physical kingdom, right? But the kingdom now in the New Testament is spiritual. It's kind of mind-blowing when you're like, oh, I get that. It makes a lot more sense when you look at those physical things in the Old Testament. We have to translate them sometimes to the spiritual in the New Testament, okay? Yeah, I think so. I mean, theirs was. Yes. Yes. And ours is spiritual. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many things when you look, when you start thinking about that concept. I think more and more of those things will start popping up in your brain. You're like, oh yeah, that was physical for the Israelites. It, I think that's the right word they'd use, and it's spiritual for us, you know. So they had the promise of money <laughs> in a lot of ways, and God was going. And in that time in history, for if you were wealthy, you were blessed by God. Like that's just what everybody believed. You have been blessed by, or you might, you've been blessed by the gods. You know that they just. They just took it as a a deity thing. Today, we don't think that way. We don't think that way. All people have money all over the place, right? There's money in Hollywood. They they don't love God. (laughs) Some of them might, but you know, you that is not how God shows Himself anymore. Now God shows Himself through a spiritual living, through His church, who are uh, people who are are um, who are happy in spite of really bad things happening in their lives. And then, and that's when people go, you're different. You're different. And, and that's when they can say, yeah, because I have Jesus. You see the, the differences there? So, okay, it's all, about, it's all about Jesus. It's all about God's glory. Again, he did those things in the Old Testament for his glory, and he's doing these things in the New Testament for his glory still today. Okay, 
We're setting the stage for this. We are going deep tonight. If you're not hanging with me, just hold on. Just hold on tight. I hope that you do. I'm praying that you do. Okay. Um, where are we? All right. We've, because God's glory is really a key theme in these four chapters, we've got to talk about it a little bit. What is, what is the holiness of God? Like, oh, I don't even feel worthy to talk about it. But the holiness of God, do you, have you guys have, do you have anything that you've like, oh, someone explained that to me this way, and, and it just really made sense. Does anything come to mind? What do you think of when you think of the holiness of God? I know. It's hard to think of anything. <laughs> Yes. So bright. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, all he could see was like a little bit of his backside. Yes, exactly. The, the holiness of God, a lot of times you, we, we'll just equate that to the, that God's purity. You know, like he's perfect. But we cannot stop there. That is one tiny aspect of his holiness. And I, I don't even know how to explain this, but it's, it's his set-apartness. So to be holy means to be set apart. He is so unlike anything else that has ever existed. That he, He's so unlike anything that's ever been created. I mean, he wasn't created. He's always been. It's his, it's his otherness. He is just, he is some other. <laughs> and we, we don't even, we have not even tipped the iceberg yet as to who this God really is. And yet we have a whole book telling us about him, and that is like, that's, that's nothing. That's nothing compared to who he is. Um, it's his transcendence, like so high above every, everything else. One of the best definitions I read this week of God's glory or his holiness is the seriousness by which he must be taken. It, it is the seriousness by which he must be taken. He's awesome. He's awesome. Mike said that this week. Like, awesome should only be used to describe God because he's, he's awesome. Isaiah 6, uh, in that passage, Isaiah sees the Lord on the throne. And I want to read that for you just a little bit. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe is filling the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. So these are angels that have been created by the Lord for exactly this purpose. They are perfect. They have no sin in them. They themselves are perfect, and yet, in God's presence, they do not even feel worthy of looking at him. And so they're covering their faces, and at the same time, they're covering their feet because of their creatureliness, if that's a word. Uh, they're, they're, they're not worthy of being in the presence of God, and they're perfect. They don't have any sin in them. They're doing exactly what they've been created to do. 
Are we getting a little bit of a picture of God's glory and his holiness? And so they are constantly covering their feet, covering their faces, and singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And that's the only characteristic of God in the Bible repeated three times in succession. That's the only characteristic. Holy, holy, holy. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And then here's Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am lost, or undone, or that word is ruined. One glimpse of God. And from what I read, Isaiah was a pretty good man. Like, he was coming at this whole thing like, pretty good, pretty godly, you know, his royalty line, like, he's a good guy. Bam. One look at God, and he is ruined. Done. Completely. And he knows it. He knows it. Except for the fact that a seraphim flew over, grabbed a burning coal from the altar, and touched his mouth with it. And then he told him, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then he's okay. One look at God. One look, tiny look at God's glory. This is just one little peek. And then God says, whom shall I send? And Isaiah's like, right here. (laughs) You can send me. That's what God's glory did to this man. I mean, he know I mean he's whoo. He just had he just about thought he was ruined and then he was forgiven. That's all of us, ladies. And the next he cannot wait to volunteer now. You know, I am right here. So that's a little bit of, of an image of God's glory. When you read through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Everything the Israelites did, all of the instructions that God gave them was all for his holiness. All of it was because I am holy. You do this because this, this needs to be holy. It needs to be set apart if it's going to be for me. Okay, and this is holy, and this is holy, and you are holy. And the Israelites were to be set apart. They were to be holy. Everything was for God's holiness. Everything written down was for his holiness. So now... That being said, we come to chapter 4 of Samuel. And let's look at it. Samuel 4, 1. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Apec. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Okay. Why do you think they were bringing the ark? I think we already hit on one point that the ark was associated with the presence of God. So hopefully, yeah, they wanted God's presence there. I think they understood that God was powerful. Any other thought? Why do you think they're like, oh, I know, let's go get the ark? I think it was also their deluxe charms. Yeah, mm-hmm, right. Oh, I know what we forgot. We forgot our, our ark. <laughs> let's go get it. <laughs> Yes, I think, it was, I think they were kind of thinking it like a good luck charm. If we just get that, we'll be fine. Well, that, it'll, it'll all be good then, right? Now, we need to understand a little bit more, I think, about the ark in order to understand 
the, the significance behind this. In actuality, it was really just a box made of acacia wood overlaid with gold inside and outside with a really cool lid on top. Like, you break it down and that's basically what it was. It's like four feet wide by, like four feet, by two feet, by two feet. It really wasn't that big. And it, it stood for God's throne. It was his earthly throne. It was where uh, he said in Exodus 25, 22, God says from above the mercy seat, which was the lid of the box from between the two cherubim, I will meet with Moses. That's where he met with Moses. That's where they had their discussions at the throne, at the earthly throne. Okay, that's what the ark was. Now, if the ark hadn't existed, there would have been no need for the tabernacle. It was the centerpiece of the tabernacle. It was the whole reason that they had the tabernacle. They could like just build an altar somewhere else if they needed to. But this whole the the holy of holies, and then the holy room, and then and then the outer um, what's that called? Whatever. Barry, I can't think. Not fence. The outer fencing <laughs> was all for the ark. It was a centerpiece on the inside. Last week we talked about how it held the tablets of stone that had the the commandments on them. And then also it held Aaron's staff that budded. And then it held a jar of manna. Those are the three things that are inside the ark. Oh, this just makes me want to so badly get into all the tabernacle stuff. Maybe that'll be next year's study. I don't know. That would be really fun. We can't go there right now into all that meaning. But I do want to share with you the meaning of the cover, the lid. It was, it was made of one solid piece of gold. It had to be hammered. It could not be cut. It was, it was some guy who God brilliantly uh, enabled to do this, hammered out two cherubim that the, from the drawings I've seen, like faced each other with their wings out like this, looking down on the ark, all right? And inside then this box is the law. Inside's the law, all right? Above it are these cherubim looking down on it. And then above it is where God said, that above the cherubim is where God said that he would meet with Moses, right? Once a year then is, is the only time anyone saw the ark other than Moses. He had like a special pass, all right? But once a year, the high priest would come in on the day of atonement after doing a whole lot of other stuff and washing himself and cleansing himself and like there was a big old process going on in order for him to come in here. And he would sprinkle... I believe it was ram's blood on the mercy seat. He would go around, he would sprinkle the blood on it, okay? So here's the picture that you get at the Ark of the Covenant. God above, God above, and, and then the, the law beneath, and then what comes in the middle? The blood. The blood came in the middle. That's the picture. That's why it's called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. This is a picture of Christ. The picture of Christ coming in the middle. His blood being the atonement for our sins, Romans 3.25, bridging this gap. And just think about these angels looking down. Looking down and watching all of it. You know, they're looking down on this mercy seat. This is the ark. This is what the ark represented for them. They didn't realize it all. They didn't know that it was really representing Jesus, the Son of God, who was going to come and die for them, take away their sins and be the Lamb. They didn't know all of that, all right? But we get to know that. So this, this, is, this is the ark. They weren't allowed near the ark. 
they weren't allowed to look at the ark. When the ark traveled, it was covered by three layers. It was, it was covered, first of all, by the veil into the Holy of Holies. Then it was covered by a layer of goat skin. And there is significance to all of this. And then it was covered by uh, blue cloth. Blue, blue. What's the color of blue? Purple's royalty, right? I don't remember what blue was. Blue has a meaning. <laughs> then it was covered, so it was covered by three layers. No one looked at it. It had uh, feet on the bottom of it that had rings that always held poles. And God said those poles were never to come off of the ark. Never. Because they were never allowed to touch it. So there's one group of people, the sons of Kohite, the Kohathites, that got to carry the ark around when Israel traveled. But again, they could not touch it. Okay? And they could not look at it. It was, the, it was just the, the priests that were able to go inside and minister. They went in and, and they somehow covered it. Because right. God is holy. All of this is because God is holy. Now, now we get, okay. Nope, I'm not ready for that yet. All right. So today, this is the amazing thing with that. that this, it represented God's earthly throne, right? But today, we are invited to God's throne all the time through the blood of Jesus. That just like, that just blows my mind. They, they could not touch it, could not get near it, nothing. Remember, everything for them is physical. Everything for us is spiritual. But we get to go spiritually into God's presence through the blood of Christ whenever we want to. There is some real privilege there. I mean, this is the time to live. I'm telling you. I'm glad to live back then. This is it right now. This is amazing. We have, we have some serious privileges all right, but I want to ask you, does the gift of God change the holiness of God? Did God's holiness change? No. No. So eternal life in Christ, did it change the holiness of God? No. 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 The question is asked later on in this text, I think it's in chapter 7, who can stand? Like the Israel is like, who can, who can stand in the presence of the Lord? Okay, the answer is right here. Those who are covered by the blood of Jesus can stand in the presence of the Lord. It's the only ones, all right? It's the only ones. The gift of God did not change the holiness of God at all. But what I think often happens is that privilege, with privilege, like, it breeds the sense of entitlement, right? Like, we, we feel like we're... We just kind of grow used to it all. And so then we feel entitled. Like, yo, Lord, I know you're up there. And so can you do this for me? Because I really need this done. Like, we get so familiar with God then. Or we get, we get so used to these privileges that we had that we feel entitled to more than what is fitting for God's holiness. We get comfortable. And I really think that's what happened with the Israelites. They, at this point must have had very little sense of God's holiness. They, they did not revere the Lord. They couldn't have. They just went and got the ark. We just talked about what everything that the ark represents. They just went and got it. It, it doesn't talk about how they got it. I don't know if they carried it by the poles. It doesn't talk about if they covered it. I don't know if they're looking at it or if they actually went through these processes that they were supposed to. We don't know. We don't know. But they are not 
They are not being reverent to the Lord at all. They are being so frivolous towards his holiness with this whole thing. And I kept asking the Lord, could you give me an example? Like, I really want to give these ladies an example, like a personal example. You're going to laugh at my example. This is the only thing I could really think of. I wanted to illustrate this for you. All right. So we have chickens, okay? We have chickens. Right now we have six chickens. And, well, we had seven. One, one of them was a rooster. We actually had eight, but one of them got eaten. And then one, <laughs> another one was a rooster. And I got sick and tired of chasing that rooster around with my broom all the time. He was going places he wasn't allowed to go and crowing up against my windows, like at 6 o'clock in the morning when my children are sleeping. This is not allowed, a rooster. And so I would chase him around the yard with my broom. I would try to get him to go in the corn. Now, like these, the other little babies now grew up. And it has come to our attention that we have another rooster. All right? Another one. So this little guy, do you just see if you can think of any parallels as I'm telling you this story, all right? This little, this little guy um, <clears throat> was hatched by my son, all right, in an incubator. I'm already seeing some parallels here, right? All right? He's at, and, and he's so cute at first. He was, he was, and he was sweet, and we could, you know, carry the little chickens around, and they're just so precious, and, you know, I'm not even an animal person, so don't tell my children I just said that. They'll be like, oh, my heart thinks they're precious. Oh, man, it's already 8.52. We got a lot to do. Okay, anyway, this rooster now is getting me. He grew up, and he thinks he owns the place. He thinks that the deck is his domain. And that he can just stand on top of my table whenever he feels like it. And then he can poop all over everything whenever he feels like it. And he can go and stand on my front porch whenever he feels like it. He does not understand. And I will go outside. And he will, he will come up to me if I go near his domain. And he like, his little beady eye out the side. He's like. to the Lord at all. Israel is not being reverent to the Lord. <clears throat> now, 
what happens? All right, we've got to move along, don't we? Israel's defeated, right? Hophni and Phinehas die, and the ark is taken captive, okay? The glory of God, Eli, all right, the glory of God is, is taken away. Eli, when he hears of it, he, he falls off his seat and breaks his neck because he's too fat. Because <laughs> he's been eating all the fat. <laughs> but that's concerning to me because I eat keto most of the time. So then I was like, huh, <laughs> no, maybe I should rethink this a little bit. <laughs> all right. Eli dies. And then Phineas's wife goes into labor, and she dies also. But before she dies, she names her son Ichabod, which means, where is the glory? Where is the glory? Where did it go? Where did it go? Well, really, it was stolen. It was stolen. It was stolen by the priests who were eating the sacrifices that they shouldn't have been, parts of the sacrifices that shouldn't have been eaten, right? It was stolen by the Israelites who were not honoring God as Lord, who were not upholding him as holy at all. They were not doing what they were told, right? Where did it go? Where did it go? It was just diminished by them. Really, it, it, it was their fault. And honestly, I look around a lot today, and I wonder sometimes, where did the glory of God go? I see it. I see it here, you know. But you look out in the world, you're like, where did the glory of God go? It starts here. If there's any fault in that, I think it starts with us. It started with the priests of Israel, right? We are the priesthood of Christ. And this is where we're really going to go next week. I've been able to work ahead a little bit, and I'm really excited about that. So here's your teaser. Come back for next week. <laughs> but we, we are responsible. We have a responsibility to uphold the glory of God as the royal priesthood of God, right? In that verse, 1 Peter 2, 9, we are to declare the excellencies of Christ. That's our job. That was their job. They were to uphold it. They did not. They did not uphold the glory of God. Though the bottom line of that is how we treat God matters. How we think of God, it really does matter. It matters a lot. Not only does our reverence for God lead to either defeat or victory in our own lives, but it may very well lead to defeat or victory in the lives of those that you love. If you honor the Lord, there is a lot better chance that your kids are going to honor the Lord. If you honor the Lord and all you do, if your goal is to uphold him as holy in your life and in your living room and in your marriage and in all the choices that you're making, that is going to rub up on some people around you, right? And it, so the, the choice of doing that, of upholding, and this is really what struck me this week, our choice of upholding the holiness of God like we're supposed to, is either going to enable us to be victorious like we want to be, or, or, or if we don't, we're going to be defeated. We are going to be defeated if we're not upholding the holiness of God. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, is it really that big of a deal, though? I want you to think about the Lord's Prayer. What, what does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 9, and 10? He says, Our Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Starts with holiness. Holy be your name. It literally says, let your name be kept holy. Why? Why? 
so that the kingdom can come, so that your will be done, all spins back to whether or not we're upholding the holiness of God. It all goes back to how we're treating God. He, he's going to hold up his, he's going to uphold his glory anyway. But in our own lives, victory or defeat really depends on how we're viewing God, how we're upholding him as holy. You guys see that? Is that, is that making sense? I hope so. So here's, okay, R.C. Sproul, this helped clarify some things. He said this, it is foolish to look for the kingdom anywhere God is not revered. It is foolish to look for the kingdom anywhere God is not revered. Where has the glory gone? It's gone to where God can be revered. It's gone, it's gone there. So that means for us, if God's holiness is not being upheld in our life, if we don't make decisions based on the holiness of God, we don't really care, you know, we, we don't really think about the holiness of God, or, um, or there's unholy things going on in our living room, or on our TVs, or in our marriage, or in our bedrooms, or wherever, in our conversations, the kingdom of, not, of God is not going to come there. It's, just, it's not going to come there. Sin will hold it at bay. All right? But if you hollow his name, this is why, I think this is why Jesus is like, this is what I want you to pray. If you, if you hollow his name in your life and in your living room and in your choices, then you are in for a treat <laughs> because you just opened the door up for the kingdom of God. Opened it up, right? Holiness, it really, really matters. Even though we're welcome in the presence of the Lord, his holiness never changed. Okay, then we get that really humorous account, right? In chapter 5, that's what's next, of the Philistine's statue falling before Dagon. He falls on, or falling before Jesus. I just said it backwards. Dagon falls on his face before the ark, right? And then the second time, well, they go and they, I just love that. Like, they're like, oh, there, little God fell over. And they go and they put him back up. Logic. Like, there's no logic to that. So the next day, then he's totally decapitated. His head comes off, his hands come off. And what are they thinking then, right? I mean, I really want to be a fly on the wall in that room. And then the whole tumor thing happens. Possibly hemorrhoids, when you look at the Hebrew word behind that. And it says, four times God's hand was heavy against them. This is his glory. God's, God's hand was heavy against them. He is upholding his glory, right? So here is the picture that I think is being painted for us. This is going to all start to come together. And this is your principle. You have two tonight. This is your first one. It is miserable to live in opposition to the holiness of God. It is miserable to live in opposition of the holiness of God. I think we've already determined they were very miserable. This is physically pictured for us by these tumors that were possibly distributed among the people by rats, as scholars might think. That might be hence where the mice came from. They're miserable. This is what's physically being displayed for us so that we can get it right spiritually. It is miserable to live in opposition to the holiness of God. Like, 
Satan makes it look like it's going to be fun. You know, you just do your own thing. You do what you want. You do what makes you happy. Whatever it is, doesn't matter about the holiness of God. No, it is miserable to live in the opposition to the holiness of God. And what I find really interesting in, in, in chapter 5, I know it's, well, it's in 4, 8, and 6, 6, is that there's two references to the Exodus. Did you guys catch that? The Philistines twice referenced the Israelites' exodus from Egypt. They, they referenced their redemption story. This is Israel's story. And the Philistines are the one talking about it. You guys, the Philistines are the ones making decisions based off the redemption story. While the Israelites should have been the ones making holy decisions based off of that story. But the Israelites aren't mentioning it. They're not talking about it. Well, they probably knew the story. But it's just, it's interesting to me that it was the Philistines that are talking about it. What happens when we grow numb to the holiness of God is that we grow numb to God's goodness. We grow numb to what he has done for us. All the amazing things. When when the holiness of God is not at the forefront of of what we're doing, hallowed be your name, Lord, your kingdom come. When it's my kingdom that's coming, I'm not thinking about the things that God has done for me. I'm not not thinking about those things at all. They suppressed the glory of God. That's what they did. Where is the glory of of God gone? They suppressed it. They remember. They weren't talking about it. That's why it was gone. Now this this part is going to blow your mind. It's going to poof you out, as Tyler likes to say. He's like, Mom, Dad, poof you out. Yeah, buddy, poof me out. This is going to poof you out, okay? I, this was so cool when I learned this. All right. <clears throat> Israel's clearly being unfaithful, right? They've been unfaithful for a long time. We can go back to all those stories in the Judges, how unfaithful they've been. We've also seen the unfaithfulness of the priests in last week's story. In Deuteronomy 28, 64 through 68, The Lord warns, now I would have thought the ultimate curse would have been hemorrhoids, but he warns that the ultimate curse that will happen to them if they do not obey is exile. That is the warning for them, exile. But who gets exiled in this story? God. God gets exiled in this story. It's the people who deserve the judgment of exile, but instead, God bears the punishment for them. Do you see that? There is a gospel picture here, a really cool gospel picture. And what goes into exile? The ark, the mercy seat, goes into exile. The the mercy seat is sent in as Israel's substitute, representing Christ. It is the mercy of God that he willingly made himself our substitute. Do you guys see that? See how cool that is? Is that that picture? Are you seeing that? God exiled himself. He sent himself. He substituted himself mercifully instead of sending Israel now there would come a time we know when he would exile them but we have the gospel right here in chapters 4 5 and 6 because God sent himself into exile and then look what happens he defeats the enemies on their own turf doesn't he 
He defeats the Philistines on their own turf. He doesn't need any help. He does it all by himself, right? And what's that a picture of? Just like Jesus, who goes into enemy territory after dying on the cross for us and defeats our enemies, defeats Satan, and then comes back victorious. That's the same thing that's presented to us here. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Okay. I love that. I love that. Now, are the Philistines willing to give glory to God? No, they're not. They just want to get rid of them. Can't really blame them, honestly. They, they try and give a guilt offering. They do it wrong, though. It should have been a ram without blemish, if you want to jot down Leviticus 5.15. And mice were considered unclean to God. It says that in Leviticus 11.29. Truly those who lack God lack wisdom. That's what that is an example of right there. There are really smart people in the world, right? But if they do not have Jesus, they are not wise. You are only wise if you have the wisdom of the Lord. So they're like, all right, if this is really the Lord, we got to get rid of this ark first of all, but this is really the Lord, we're going to send it back. And if we send it back with milking cows, who have these babies, who would have wanted to go to their babies, but if they don't come back and they just like go, and they just go to Beth Shemesh without even looking back, then we're going to know that it was the Lord. We're going to know that it was Israel's God that was doing it to us. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. And those female cows, just, who cares about those babies? They just go. And they go to Beth Shemesh. And interesting enough, remember how I told you that the Kohathites were the ones who carried that ark, they were the ones who were designated to carry the ark around. Well, Beth Shemesh is one of the cities where they were allowed to live. It was one of their designated cities. So there might have been a whole bunch of Kohathites there. I don't know how many people lived there, all right? But So when they see the ark coming, what do they do? They celebrate. I'm going to kind of rush through this. They celebrate. I would have celebrated too. It's coming back. But again... They are not reverent to the Lord. They split up the wood of the ark and they offer up these two female cows to God. You do not offer female cows. It should have been bulls. It should have been males. And they should have known that. And then, and this is the worst offense, they display the ark on a rock for all to see. Remember how we talked about how it couldn't be seen? It should not be seen at all. But even worse... The way the text is written, I think it's hard to see this in the text, but every single thing I read said what the, the, the wording here is that they looked in it. They opened it up and they looked in it. We don't know how many of them looked in it. It says that 70 men, that God killed 70 men. But in the original uh, Hebrew I, I read several different things, and I don't know why it doesn't say this now. Some people think that it was, it was just an um, accidental script. It was a problem with a scribe. But the Hebrew says 50,070 men. Not just 70 men. The, the original text says 50,070 men. So if that is the case, God just killed more Israelites than the Philistines killed. 
Why? Because he's holy. And he cares about his holiness. And he will uphold his holiness whether we are willing to uphold it or not. He's holy. He's holy. So what do they do? They mourn and they seek to exile the ark just like the Philistines did. They're like, we, we're going to send this thing away. So they send it to a guy named, or the house of Abinadab, and it stays there for a long time. And we already talked about probably because Shiloh was no more. Probably didn't exist anymore. Write down Jeremiah 7.12. You can look at it later. That's the verse that talks about, where God talks about, just look at what I did to Shiloh. All right, He destroyed it. Because God takes his holiness seriously. That's what we're seeing throughout this whole thing. He takes it very serious. Okay? Now eventually, 20 years later, the people finally lament. There is something that gets them stirred up. And they finally are like, this is not going well for us. We are living defeated. Well, we know why they're living defeated. Because they're not living with the holiness of God in an appropriate stance to the holiness of God, okay? They are not living upholding God, all right? That's why they're defeating. They're finally lamenting that. And this gives Samuel the opportunity that he's probably been waiting for for so long. And he says, gather at Mizpah. So they do. And they spend the day fasting and confessing their sins and doing what they should have done all along repenting and coming to God like they should have done in the first place. And lo and behold, while they're doing this, the Philistines come up against them. All right? And they're like, help us! But this time they cry out to Samuel. It's, it's kind of like they got a whole do-over. All right? And Samuel, what does Samuel do? Let's look at it real quick. First Samuel 7, 9 and 10. This is really cool. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. And get this, verse 10. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Guys, when did the victory come? As Samuel was sacrificing. Victory comes through sacrifice. Came through Christ's sacrifice. It came also as they are worshiping. Victory came as they were worshiping. While their posture was appropriate toward the God who made them, that's when victory came. Do you see that? That's when they were finally victorious. You guys, that's, that's huge. Worship, reverence, awe, having that appropriate posture toward the God who's made us, that is how we are going to experience repeated victory in our lives. We are saved. We are at war, all right? And we are often defeated. And I think it comes down to how we are treating God. Are we really truly revering him as holy in our lives? And if we are not, we are still going to be defeated. 
But when we uphold him as holy and we have an appropriate stance towards him and we are worshiping him, victory. Here is victory. I had this play out for me this week. Um, and I'm about one minute. Well, all right. I'm going to share it anyway. I, uh, five years ago, Craig and I went through a really hard time. Not in our marriage, but some people basically attacked us, said a lot of lies about us, a lot of really mean things, that very destructive, horrible things. And it was an attack. I mean, I look at it as a spiritual attack for sure. It was definitely, a, I look at it now as a test from the Lord as to what we would do. Um, and, and it still hurts sometimes when I think about it. We tried to reconcile with these people. They would not reconcile with us. It has never been reconciled because they were unwilling. So we had to make peace with the Lord on our own. And I had to work through forgiving them. I have hardly seen them in the last five years. Maybe once or twice. I saw them at Aldi on Monday. And I, I had the most physiological reaction. I, I started shaking. Like I did not... I did not know what to do, and I knew they saw me, and I saw them, and I just thought, okay, Lord, like, I don't want to go here. This represents a place that I, I will sin. <laughs> this is really hard for me right now, <laughs> okay? But I just determined, like, all right, I'm just going to follow the arrows with Aldi, and if they, if I went into this, like, I will say hi. I, I can say hi, right? I can do that. Thankfully, I never had to say hi. I'm telling you, I was thinking, I know where the bathroom is, like, I'm going to throw up. I don't want to see these people right now. I was in bad shape, all right, when I was driving Sam's Club. I walk into Sam's Club. Guess who I see? Annie and David. And the Lord gave me this visual. I didn't even talk to them. They were talking to somebody else. It was all set up for me, Annie. All of it was because the Lord went, look at that guy. He's the one who leads you in worship. Yes, those people lead you to sin. He leads you to worship. You have a choice to make right now. You can be victorious if you get an appropriate stance towards me and you worship me. You get your thoughts back on me, young lady, and you worship me. I'm telling you, I got in the car and I just bawled. I think so. I was just so thankful to God for reminding me of that. And I worshiped him. And I'm thankful to say I was victorious. I, and that whole thing. That's how that plays out in our everyday lives. We've got these daily choices to make. There is victory when we uphold God as holy like we're supposed to. And there is defeat when we don't. We're already kind of defeated when we don't, right? Okay. <clears throat> I have to show you one more. Your last principle. I'm like two minutes over. Just take this principle. It's rewarding to live in reverence to the holy God. It's miserable not to, well, the opposite of that. It is rewarding to live in reverence to God. Whatever is going on in your life right now, it will be rewarding if you get an appropriate stance towards this mo the most amazing God. If you can live in that appropriate stance, hallowed be his name. Let his kingdom come. It will be rewarding. God rewards those, all right? Now, real quick, I just want to show you. Samuel sets up this stone, and he calls it Ebenezer, which means stone of help, right? I want you to look back, though, at 4.1. Look back at 4.1, and 
and it says down at the, the in the middle it says they encamped remember remember the first battle when they lost look where they were they encamped at Ebenezer the writer writer already knew the name right it hadn't happened yet but the writer of this probably Samuel already knew the name so he's like they were at Ebenezer okay you guys think about that the very places where you might be experiencing defeat right now could be the very place of victory if you honor God as holy. If you repent and you get back to him the way we're supposed to. Do you see that? that they had victory 20 years later at this place, the same place. God gave them a do-over at the same place. You can have victory in those places that are really, really hard. But it all depends how we treat God. If we are actually revering him as holy, his holiness matters. How we treat him matters. So I want to leave you with this. If you feel like you just are constantly living in defeat, like you're just always stuck, and you just can't get past these, these ways, you can't shake them, I just want you to think, how are you treating the holiness of God? Is it something you think about? You know, is it, is it something that you and the Lord need to talk about? Is he holy to you? Is he holy? Living in reverence to God is such a fantastic keeper. Worship is really our keeper. It keeps me. It really does. It rescues me so often. But failing to live in reverence to God leaves us vulnerable. And most of the time, it leaves us defeated. That's what we see in these chapters. That's what we see happen right here. An appropriate reverence and worship of God brought victory for Israel, while a frivolous attitude towards his holiness brought defeat. It brought defeat, right? Do you guys see that? Okay. Phew. <laughs> That's a hard concept to teach. I was a mess a couple days ago trying to figure all this out, but I think the Lord worked it out. Just remember God is holy. He's calling you to himself, asking you to to love him, to uphold him, so he can give you that victory, okay? I want to beat us down. I don't want to, I don't want to do that, but, but God, God is holy, and we have to be serious about that. I'm going to pray. I'm really sorry we're late. <laughs> Father, thank you for your word. We praise you for your holiness, for who you are, for loving us, Lord, for giving us love, uh, just, just overwhelming us with love in a place that should have been wrath, Lord, on us. Because you are holy. I just, I just pray that you would enlighten us. You love on us, God. I thank you for that. Go with these women now, Lord, and, and just hold them tight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks, guys. Next week we get to see uh, Saul become king. So we're going to get into the kingship. And it's, it's going to be fun. I'm real excited. So.